Welcome to Wick Me Off to Sleep, where together we follow intriguing blue links through the depths of Wikipedia until you're sound asleep. Distract your racing mind with semi-interesting content until it becomes so boring you drift away. Today, our random article is Grundler. Grundler is a surname. Notable people with the surname include Alexander Grundler, born 1993, Austrian footballer, Beatrice Grundler, born 1964, German Arabist, Hartmann Grundler, 1930-1977, German teacher and activist, Matthias Grundler, born 1965, German businessman. I don't know what an Arabist is. We're going to go for Beatrice. Beatrice Grundler, born 24 August 1964 in Offenburg, is a German Arabist and professor of Arabic language and literature at Free University of Berlin and president of the American Oriental Society. Grundler's areas of research include classical Arabic literature and its social context, the integration of literary theory into the study of Near Eastern literatures, the history of the Arabic languages, Arabic paleography, the history of the Arabic book, and the connection between Arabic and other pre-modern literatures. Grundler understands Arabic as a cosmopolitan language. In pre-modern times, from the 7th to 19th century, Arabic was a learned language, and it served as a medium for many writers of other mother tongues, such as Iranians, Jews, Byzantine Greeks, Visigoths, and others. Arabic assembled the voices of individuals of various ethnic and religious backgrounds. All of these formed part of the Arabic Islamic Commonwealth. And Cosmopolitan is just a blue link staring me in the face. We have to follow it. This redirected to cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism is the idea that all human beings are members of a single community. Its adherents are known as cosmopolitan or cosmopolite. Cosmopolitanism is both prescriptive and aspirational, believing humans can and should be, quote, world citizens in a, quote, universal community. The idea encompasses different dimensions and avenues of community, such as promoting universal moral standards, establishing global political structures, or developing a platform for mutual cultural expression and tolerance. I'm going to follow universal moral standards to the next page. This redirected to moral universalism. Moral universalism, also called moral objectivism, is the meta-ethical position that some systems, some system of ethics or a universal ethic applies universally. That is for, quote, all similarly situated individuals, regardless of culture, race, sex, religion, nationality, sexual orientation, gender identity, or any other distinguishing feature. Moral universalism is opposed to moral nihilism and moral relativism. However, not all forms of moral universalism are absolutist, nor are they necessarily value monist. Many forms of universalism, such as utilitarianism, are non-absolutist, and some forms, such as that of Isaiah Berlin, may be valuable pluralist. In Attempts to Define a Universal Morality, in his groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, 1785, Immanuel Kant attempts to derive a supreme principle of morality that blends all rational agents. Very curious what rational agents are. 
A rational agent or rational being is a person or entity that always aims to perform optimal actions based on given premises and information. A rational agent can be anything that makes decisions, typically a person, firm, machine, or software. The concept of rational agents can be found in various disciplines such as artificial intelligence, cognitive science, decision theory, economics, ethics, game theory, and the study of practical reason. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is intelligence, perceiving, synthesizing, and inferring information demonstrated by machines, as opposed to intelligence displayed by humans or, other, or by other animals. Example tasks in which this is done include speech recognition, computer vision, translation between natural languages, as well as other mappings of inputs. There's a future section, and I want to jump into that. Specifically, let's jump into existential risk. Superintelligent AI may be able to improve itself to the point that humans could not control it. This could, as physicist Stephen Hawking puts it, quote, spell the end of the human race. Philosopher Nick Bostrom argues that sufficiently intelligent AI, if it chooses actions based on achieving some goal, will exhibit convergent behavior, such as acquiring resources or protecting itself from being shut down. If this AI's goals do not fully reflect humanities, it might need to harm humanity to acquire more resources or prevent itself from being shut down, ultimately to better achieve its goal. He concludes that AI poses a risk to mankind, however humble or, quote, friendly that stated goals might be. Political scientist Charles T. Rubin argues that any sufficiently advanced benevolence may be indistinguishable from malevolence. Humans should not assume machines or robots would treat us favorably because there is no a priori reason to believe that they would share our system of morality. Thought-capable artificial beings have appeared as storytelling devices since antiquity and have been a persistent theme in science fiction. A common trope in these works began with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where a human creation becomes a threat to its masters. This includes such works as Arthur C. Clarke's and Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, both 1968, with HAL 9000, the murderous computer in charge of the Discovery One spaceship, as well as The Terminator, 1984, and The Matrix, 1999. I'm going to click into HAL 9000. HAL 9000, or simply HAL, is a fictional artificial intelligence character and the main antagonist in Arthur C. Clarke's Space Odyssey series. First appearing in the 1968 film 2001 A Space Odyssey, HAL, heuristically programmed algorithmic computer, apparently that's its acronym, is a sentient artificial general intelligence computer that controls the systems of the Discovery One spacecraft and interacts with the ship's astronaut crew. While part of HAL's hardware is shown towards the end of the film, he is mostly depicted as a camera lens containing a red and yellow dot, with such units located throughout the ship. Jumping ahead, let's look at cultural impact. HAL is listed as the 13th greatest film villain in the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains, the 9,000th of the asteroids in the asteroid belt, 9,000 HAL, discovered on May 3, 1981, by E. Bowell at Anderson Mesa Station, is named after HAL 9000. Anthony Hopkins based his Academy Award-winning performance as Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs 
in part upon Hal 9000. Let's jump into Silence of the Lambs. The Silence of the Lambs is a 1991 American psychological horror film directed by Jonathan Demme and written by Ted Talley, adapted from Thomas Harris's 1988 novel. It stars Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling, a young FBI trainee who is hunting a serial killer named Buffalo Bill, played by Ted Levine, who skins his female victims. All right, this is supposed to be for sleep. Why don't we jump into something a little softer? Let's look at Jonathan Demme, the film's director. Robert Jonathan Demme, didn't know that was his first name, born February 22, 1944, died April 26, 2017, was an American filmmaker. Beginning his career under B-movie producer Roger Corman, Demme made his directorial debut with the 1974 women in prison film Caged Heat before becoming known for his casually humanist films, such as Melvin and Howard, 1980, Swing Shift, 1984, Something Wild, 86, and Married to the Mob, 88. His direction of the 1991 psychological horror film, The Silence of the Lambs, won him an Academy Award for Best Director. Demi also directed numerous concert films, such as Stop Making Sense, 1984, Neil Young, Heart of Gold, 2006, and Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids, 2016 and worked on several television series as both a producer and director. Let's go to Stop Making Sense. Stop Making Sense is a 1984 American concert film featuring a live performance by the American rock band Talking Heads. Directed by Jonathan Demme, it was shot over the course of three nights at Hollywood's Pantages Theater. I've heard of Pantages Theater so much, let's click into it. The Hollywood Pantages Theater, formerly known as RKO Pantages Theater, is located at Hollywood and Vine in Hollywood, designed by architect B. Marcus Prateka. It was the last theater built by the vaudeville impresario Alexander Pantages. The palatial Art Deco Theater opened on June 4, 1930 as part of the Pantages Theater Circuit. I want to learn more about Art Deco tonight. Art Deco, short for the French Art Decoratif, and sometimes referred to simply as deco, as a style of visual arts, architecture, and product design that first appeared in France in the 1910s, just before World War I, and flourished in the United States and Europe during the 1920s and 30s. Through styling and design of the exterior and interior of anything from large structures to small objects, including how people look, clothing, fashion, and jewelry, Art Deco has influenced bridges, buildings, from skyscrapers to cinemas, ships, ocean liners, trains, cars, trucks, buses, furniture, and everyday objects like radios and vacuum cleaners. I'm going to click down into Art Deco architecture around the world. This section is now broken up by continent, and I'm going to click into the one that looks the coolest to me. The Hotel Nacional de Cuba in Havana, built in 1930. This is a historic Spanish eclectic style hotel in Havana, Cuba, opened in 1930, located on the seafront of, of Vedado District. It stands on Taganana Hill, offering commanding views of the sea and the city. 1950s heyday. In September 1955, Kirkaby Hotels Corp. sold the Hotel Nacional to a newly formed Cuban company, Corporación Intercontinental. Intercontinental de Hoteles, essay, with 
Pan Am's Intercontinental Hotel Corp division, assuming partial ownership and also management of the property. Alphonse Landa, a prominent Washington attorney, represented Pan Am and arranged for other clients and friends to acquire shares in the hotel ownership at the same time. Dave Beck, president of the T-Masters, and Roy Fruhoff of the Fruhoff Trailer Corporation were silent partners for at least two years. Fruhoff would sell his interests in the hotel in May 1957. Other investors would lose everything when Castro came to power. Lansky planned to take a wing of the 10-story hotel and create luxury suites for high-stakes gamblers. Batista endorsed Lansky's idea even though there were objections from American expatriates, such as Ernest Hemingway. Under Lansky's impetus, a wing of the Grand Entrance Hall was refurbished to include a bar, a restaurant, a showroom, and a luxurious casino. It was operated by Lansky and his brother Jake, with Wilbur Clark as the front man. The new wing of the hotel, consisting of Wilbur Clark's Casino International, the adjoining Starlight Terrace Bar, and the Casino Parisien Nightclub, home of the famous Dancing Waters, wish there was a blue link for that, opened in 1956 with a performance by Eartha Kitt, who became the hotel's first black guest. The casino and clubs were an immediate success. According to an unpublished article sent to Cuban Information Archives around 1956-57, quote, the bar was tended by local bartenders and the casino managed by a gentleman from Las Vegas. By the spring of 1957, the casino, sublet by the hotel for a substantial rent to Lansky, was bringing in as much cash as the biggest casinos in Las Vegas. In 1958, the casino was sold to Michael McLaney and Carol Rosenblum. Following the Cuban Revolution in January 1959, Havana's casinos were briefly shut down, but were quickly reopened after protests by casino workers left out of work. The Nacional suffered heavy financial losses in the months that followed, and as a direct result, the Intercontinental Hotels Division of Pan Am reported a net loss of $154,000 in 1959 after reporting a profit of $200,000 in 1958. Fidel Castro nationalized the hotel in June 1960, seizing it from Intercontinental Hotels, which resulted in the hotel chain posing a net loss of $71,000 in 1960. Castro finally closed the casino in October 1960, almost two years after his overthrow of Batista. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, anti-aircraft guns were set up on the site of the Santa Clara Battery, and an extensive series of tunnels were built under the property which are now up open to the public on guided tours. After years of neglect due to the reduction in tourism following the revolution, the hotel was mainly used to accommodate visiting diplomats, foreign government officials. The collapse of the USSR in 1991 forced the Cuban Communist Party, anxious for foreign exchange reserves, to reopen Cuba to tourists. We'll click into Cuban Communist Party. The Cuban Communist Party of Cuba is the sole ruling party of Cuba. It was founded on the 3rd of October 1965 as the successor to the United Party of the Cuban Socialist Revolution, which was in turn made up of the 26th of July movement and Popular Socialist Party that seized power in Cuba after the 1959 Cuban Revolution. The party governs Cuba as an authoritarian one-party state where dissidents and political opposition are prohibited and repressed. The Cuban Constitution ascribes the role of the party to be, quote, leading force of society and of the state. 
Okay, scroll down to ideology. And let's jump into economy. The party has been more reluctant in engaging in market reforms, though it has been forced to accept some market measures in its economy due to the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the resultant loss of economic subsidies. Raul Castro, after becoming the leader of the party, campaigned to, quote, renew Cuba's socialist economy through incorporating new exchange and distribution systems that have been traditionally seen as, quote, market-oriented. This has led to some speculation that Cuba may transition towards a model more similar to a socialist market economy, like that of China, or a socialist-oriented market economy like that of Vietnam. Private property and the need for foreign investment were recognized in the new constitution promulgated in 2019. Let's click into socialist market economy. The socialist market economy is the economic system and model of economic development employed in the People's Republic of China. The system is a market economy with the predominance of public ownership and state-owned enterprises. The term socialist market economy was introduced by Jiang Zemin, during the 14th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party in 1992 to describe the goal of China's economic reforms. Originating in the Chinese economic reforms initiated in 1978 that integrated China into the global market economy. The socialist market economy represents a preliminary or primary stage of developing socialism. Some commentators describe the system as a form of, quote, state capitalism, while others describe it as an original evolution of Marxism in line with Marxism-Leninism, similar to new economic policy of the Soviet Union, adapted to the cohabitation with a globalized capitalist system. And with that, we will end our sleep journey tonight. If you are not asleep by now, feel free to listen to me ramble for the next few moments. If you're already asleep, Congratulations. We'll see you tomorrow. See you the day after, next week, whenever you need it. Sleep well.